Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder at Retzel and Andrus and leader of our healthcare practice. Today, I'm joined by Ike Debji, who has 20 years of national legal practice experience devoted exclusively to asset protection law. He's the founder of Pro Asset Protection with his partner, helps protect a client base that includes thousands of physicians and their practices. He's a national CME and CLE presenter and author that has contributed to five books on asset protection and risk management for doctors and has authored several hundred articles on these issues for medical publications, including medical economics and physician practice. And We've had Icon before, and we're very excited to have him on again. So welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you again. So today we're going to talk about asset protection, and this is a topic that comes up again and again. I'm always being asked by physicians, you know, can I help them with asset protection? Or I'm talking to younger doctors in particularly, asking them, you know, what steps have they taken? Have they ever thought about asset protection? So it is something that either um, people know about, but don't know how to do it, or they don't know that they need it at all. So I think this is a really great topic. So why don't we start with you just explaining, you know, what is asset protection? What does it mean? And why is it important for doctors to think about it? Thank you. That's, that is a great starting point. So what is asset protection? Well, first of all, it's proactive. So the first thing that we stress when we talk about it is that these are measures that you can only implement legally and predictably to protect yourself against future problems. And unfortunately, I turn away somewhere between six and eight callers a month who are either referred for me or call me on their own seeking help after something bad has happened. So we, you know, that is the first thing that we always try and make people understand is that you have to do this proactively. Secondly, asset protection planning is about risk mitigation, right? So we want to make sure that we have a good idea of what all the person's risks are and that we're making a list of those risks and taking the steps that are reasonable to mitigate those risks, whether that means mitigating employment law risk with um, the right kind of employment manual and, and you know, em employee lawsuit insurance, um, or something else. So it is about risk management. And then finally, it's about legal tools. It's about legal tools that make your personal assets legally distinct from your personal and professional liability. And I say personal and professional, especially when talking to doctors, because doctors obviously are always worried about the elephant in the room, which is medical malpractice risk, but they face many other forms of risk. And we're going to talk about some of those things as well. But it is using legal tools that can make your assets that you have been fortunate enough to earn and accumulate legally distinct from the rest of your life. And you have a legal and ethical right to do that proactively if you're working with the right people and using the right tools. So for instance, it's not having large amounts of your taxable savings and investment accounts in your own name. It's about putting your home in the right kind of legal vehicle if you have a, a lot of exposed equity in your home. It's about running your businesses the right way or, or your investment real estate the right way and having those things in the right legal wrappers. So it, it means different things to different people. It's fact specific, but the goals are always the same. Hmm. So for a younger physician, 
who really hasn't started earning a lot of money yet. Um, you know, one of the recently I did a series on do they really still need a will? Do they need to do estate planning? And of course, the answer is yes. But how soon does the doctor really need to start thinking about asset protection? Is it when they really own a home or when they really have money in the bank? Or are there other situations where they proactively need to be thinking about it? I think the best answer is that they need to start thinking about it day one. All right. And whether that's even while they're in their residency or anywhere else. Right. So there are things that are appropriate for different people with different net worth and income levels at whatever stage of life they're in and whatever stage of wealth they're in. So there are basics that we want to see that, let's say that young physician that you mentioned, the baby doc, um, there are some basic things that that person should do, right? They should have an estate plan. They should have disability insurance to protect their single greatest asset at that stage in their career, which is their ability to work and earn. They should have very high levels of personal liability insurance, like an umbrella policy on their home and their car. Even if that home is rented, even if that car doesn't have a significant amount of value, the potential for liability or to do harm with that car can be devastating. And of course, when a personal injury attorney sees the initials MD, um, you know, there's an assumption that there is wealth, that there is income, right? There is the perception of wealth, which can be dangerous. So it's important that those very basic, cheap, and predictable measures are, are the first steps for that person who's starting in their career to make sure they don't have a setback at the outset. Um, so again, personal liability insurance, disability insurance, I think having a basic estate plan, as you alluded to, is important. Um, we talk about life insurance. Um, sometimes young, younger physicians don't feel they need it, especially if they're single. And we have seen that, you know, there are cases where they do need it, especially think about cases where somebody has, has personally guaranteed uh, a significant amount of your student debt, right? So um, do you want your parents stuck with that debt? Maybe you should get some term life insurance, which can be, you know, less than 500 bucks a year. So the investments that are required to do some of these things the right way are small, but the impact can be very big. Now, when do they start needing legal tools? Well, when they have specific assets to protect. And we've already said that, you know, let's assume that the estate plan is something that they understand and that they should have. Um, but when what I tell people, typically when physicians have their first Fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in savings, in money that is taxable, that is in an investment or savings account. That's when we start saying, okay, maybe it's time to set up a piggy bank, the legal piggy bank, if you will, and create a legal holding company to put those assets in, so they have a safe place to put that in. They have a safe place within which to accumulate wealth, and from which to reinvest that wealth. So that if they save some cash and then say, okay, now I'm going to get a financial advisor and I'm going to give that advisor control of this account to make it bigger for me, let's make sure that the doc isn't holding that account in their own name and that it is protected. So those are some of the most basic steps. Obviously, as your life gets more complex and as your success grows, when you have a home with equity that needs to be protected. There are tools that are appropriate. When you have investment real estate that's producing income, there are tools that are appropriate for that. So the good news is you don't have to do it all at once. The right way to eat this elephant is one bite at a time. And we often start very basic and add pieces as the person continues to grow their wealth.
Does that make sense? It, it does. I completely understand. Now, I know you were saying, though, that individually physicians have to manage the risk, but there's also other kinds of risk once they're part of a practice, for example, right? How does that risk change? Uh, and what, once they are part of an entity that's practicing medicine, what are some other examples of risk that they could be looking at there? And how might the protections that they need be a little bit different? Sure. So when we're talking about, and I think what you're talking about is medical practice owners and partners. So mm -hmm. when we go from being an associate physician and you become a member of a group and now you're a partner. Well, now there are things that you need to be aware of as a business owner. And I'm sometimes surprised that group members don't mentally put themselves in the in the category of being a business owner, right? Um, so there are lots of non-patient risks. Obviously, we've you know malpractice is, is always the one that's first and foremost. That's the blinking red light on every physician's risk dash. But there are many other business-related risks in a medical practice that need to be carefully managed and paid attention to. For instance, employee employment risk, employment law risk, employee lawsuit risk is one of the biggest threats that every American business faces. You're five times more likely to be sued by an employee than for any other reason uh, as an American business owner, right? So your medical practice is a business like any other. It just has the one or two or three or four extra medical risks on top of that, right? So it could be your malpractice risk, it could be your HIPAA compliance risk, things like that, right? But um, so we see that they should be aware of employment law risk and that risk should be proactively managed again with having EPLI insurance, which is employment practices liability insurance and having good and enforced employment practices and employee practice manuals, employment manuals, right? That define what is appropriate conduct, that define how do we redress a complaint in the workplace? What is our dress code? What is our leave code? What is our speech code, right? Those are the kinds of things that having good documentation and good leadership is the first layer of defense against that kind of risk. We also see that I'm routinely surprised that many successful docs, whether they are small practice owners or members of a group, have inadequate cyber liability risk management, whether it's for a data breach or a ransomware attack or the intentional misuse of PII by an employee, which we've seen in practices where somebody starts stealing patient credit card numbers and using them, whether it's for HIPAA information uh, leaks and breaches for which there is significant liability. So again, what does that come down to? It's the same three steps, right? It's having a compliance program that's enforced and the having leadership that actually is aware and making sure everybody's following the rules. Because we've seen lots of offices that have this fancy plan that is distributed to everybody about passwords and logins and where you can use and what kind of software you can put on the devices you've been given and your, your work laptop or your, your tablet, but nobody checks on it or enforces it, right? So merely having rules that are not enforced without leadership is sometimes uh, a bad thing. And so on the cyber liability issue, we want to make sure that they both have a good compliance policy and that they have very significant amounts of insurance. Many medical practices have a rider on their, on their medical malpractice insurance coverage 
that covers some cyber liability and maybe adds $50,000 or at the most a hundred. And in some cases it even shares the limits of your med mal policy. We advise that you should have a seven figure standalone cyber liability policy. And obviously depending on the size of a practice, I mean, we're talking about a small practice, that's a million dollars. Are we talking about a has hospital? Obviously it's a significant multiple of that. But having both the policy, the leadership, the enforcement, and the insurance in place to, for cyber risks is vital. Um, we're also seeing, again, a resurgence of ADA compliance complaints. And in many cases, these are churned by plaintiff's attorneys who are going out and looking for a place that doesn't have a ramp that has a step where the toilets aren't set up, right? All of those details. And look, uh, I, I certainly believe in ADA compliance. The rules are there for, for a reason. Accessibility is an important goal. That's great. But there are people who are abusing that system. And so what we are saying is, hey, if you own the facility, then you need to make sure that you know, you're compliant on that issue as well. So those are a couple of uh, just a couple of very specific right. examples of things that have nothing to do maybe directly with touching a patient. And those are risks that are commonly overlooked. Right. I think that's great advice. And I think doctors need to understand that the, their team needs to be composed of the right people. So you could have your accountant forming an entity and you could have your lawyer writing your employment agreement, you know, but and then you need to have your insurance broker who's familiar with the type of policies that you need. And then, you know, there's different people that play different roles. I don't know that everybody can wear all the different hats. I mean, you don't sell insurance, but you tell people that they need to have insurance, right? Or, or I, you know, I help people with their, some of their employment policies, um, but, you know, I don't sell insurance either. So I think people need to understand that when they run a business, they need a complete team of everybody who can help guide them through what their business needs. It's not just, you know, your EMR system and your malpractice policy, which I think is what a lot of, especially smaller practices really think, you know, they have everything covered if they've got that set up, right? So it, it really takes a team. And from what you're describing so far, I'm hearing your, uh, maybe your estate planning lawyer, your asset protection lawyer, your corporate healthcare person, your insurance person, um, maybe your employment lawyer specifically, um, you know, and a variety, you know, there's, there's, we have like an art firm, somebody who just does cyber liability uh, enforcement litigation, right? So when clients are sued or there's big lawsuits related to this, you know, the cost of defending that is far excesses over getting the policies that you're talking about. Um, yesterday, uh, I recorded another uh, podcast with somebody who specifically talks about uh, cybersecurity and how chat GPT is going to affect practices. And she was anticipating that, in fact, she thought it was going to create even greater liability for practices. Um, there's ways for it to be hacked, uh, relying on it when it could be inconsistent, whether you're using it for coding um, or you're documenting your notes or uh, responding to comments on your web page, right, where somebody you know, is making a comment and then, you know, this chat GPT set up to kind of respond and you've got the HIPAA compliance issue with that response, you know, or marketing that might be done and whether that marketing is compliant with the anti-kickback statute and other healthcare laws. So with increase in technology, I think cybersecurity is one of the biggest risks 
going forward that practices are going to face. Um, and very few of them hold separate policies. I just don't think it's really come into people's minds, especially smaller practices, about what that risk could look like. I, I see that as like one of the biggest risks uh, going forward. And I guess, you know, I'm interested to hear whether you would agree with that about chat GPT and what else you see as some of the biggest risks that maybe are newer risks that people might be facing that maybe they haven't thought about before. Well, I, I do agree with you that AI presents new challenges, whether it's chat GPT or any other platform, right? Because um, I remember about a month ago seeing news reports over the, and they've, they've continued over the last few weeks, um, especially on Twitter, where you and I are, are both sometimes active. And, you know, there are lots of stories about, I used this AI, AI program to do this. I have never right. coded before, and I told it to do this. And it came up <laughs> yeah. with it, right? Really, and yeah. then, of course, a week later, it was, I told AI to hack. <laughs> okay. And so I think that um, there is, you know, unfortunately, the potential for the misuse of these tools by bad actors is always there. I think there's a potential for misuse of the tools internally, as you said. There are things where it may not be secure, it may not be compliant, right? You as you are super technical. And one of the reasons that I've that um, you know I follow your writing is to inform myself and your I look at your work to inform myself on very technical legal healthcare issues. Um, and you know what, what we're seeing there is is a disconnect very often between the reality of what these things can do, right? We tell people that you're responsible for vendor compliance and you're responsible for third-party compliance with everybody who touches anything that you know relates to your um, your your data in your office. And we're not looking at these new technologies the same way. Um, you know, you asked about other risks and you, you said something interesting earlier about having a good insurance broker, right? So that's a great segue into another thing. One of the things that I've been consistent in warning healthcare practitioners about over the last few years is the growing risk of violence in the healthcare profession. Um, and in some cases that is targeted against healthcare professionals. So we've seen in particular uh, those involved with first, first it was the mask issue, then it was the vaccine issue. Now it's um, then it, you know reproductive healthcare professionals have always been targets uh, for frankly what what amounts to domestic terrorism, violence, things like that, politically, religiously motivated violence, and now of course the latest healthcare scapegoat is those involved in gender affirming care in any way even mm -hmm. tangentially, right? So even if you work at a children's hospital that has, you know, two people on one floor <laughs> that are doing this, that healthcare facility can become a target for these kinds right. of things. And we have seen um, many medical groups, including the AMA, have recently reached out to the DOJ and said, hey, we're under attack, we face threats, we face violence, we need help. So in a atmosphere that is as charged as our current atmosphere is, I think managing those risks is very important. That means having active and passive security measures at your practice. Does the door lock? Do we have to be buzzed in to get beyond the waiting room? Um, do we have cameras? Is our facility secure? Right, Those kinds of things. Do we have active shooter insurance 
Uh, that's where something like a broker, an, an, an educated broker comes in. I recently had um, one of the multi-line commercial insurance brokers that, that we work with review a client's coverage, and they found that the active shooter policy that, that they had in place to protect the business from an act of violence and all of the bad things that come along with that um, excluded domestic violence, which is the leading cause of workplace violence, right? Um, you know, in some cases, it's targeted against the facility because of what they do. And in some cases, it's somebody's personal problem that spills over into the workplace. So I'm advising my physician practice owners or those who are, whether they're physicians or just practice owners or facility operators, to be aware of the security issues, to be insured for the security issues, and to have internal policies um, and a risk management plan and evacuation plan for those kinds of things. And so and I'm saying to people like, look, I, uh, I'm talking to you from Arizona. This is gun country, right? Everyone has a gun. And so I'm asking my business owners, not just physicians, but the many other kinds of business owners we protect, do you have a firearms policy? Do you have a policy that says who who works who who works for you in your office can have a firearm or if anybody can have it and under what conditions and where it is and how it's stored and all of those details do you have a policy that says who who comes in off the street can have a firearm right and i'm i'm not trying to have a two a discussion with you here at all this is a risk management discussion for business right. owners right this is not about gun rights this is right. about how are you controlling this very significant issue when we know that there are people out there? So having the right broker that can spot an issue like, hey, did you know the number one cause of these events is excluded from your policy? Maybe we need a different one is right. one of those risk mitigation measures. That makes sense. And then of course, the next step is to make sure you have some kind of plan in place for if somebody does come in with a gun and you have a policy against it, who has to confront them and what your practices are going to be because that's where we often had an issue with the masking and uh, right. the vaccination was we had a policy in place but it was enforcement you know by your front desk person or your practice manager you know it just very rarely went over well and you know people I don't know what's changed over the past few years but you know people are much more um you know, opinionated maybe, or more uh, violent in sharing their opinion. But the fact is that you have a right to set the policies in your practice, and you have the right to exclude patients and visitors that won't follow them, regardless of what the topic is. And so I think business owners need to talk with their counsel, figure out what are our rules going to be, of course, assuming compliance with state law, etc., um, and kind of, you know, figure it out. So yes, get the policy, determine what your practices policies are going to be and then how you're going to enforce them. It's all, that's where all the different members of your team kind of come in. You have to work collectively. Um, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I really think about it, you know, us lawyers in a high rise or whatever, um, we're not really getting, um, you know, random visitors throughout the day. Nobody comes to see me. So, um, you know, we, we don't really face those same risks, but actually, you know, a lot of healthcare providers are very scared now about, you know, working in their, you know, hospital or practice, et cetera. So great, great point. So what other type of risks are you seeing out there um, that people might be thinking about when it comes to 
asset protection or whether they're at risk? Well, I think another thing that we need to think about is some of the seasonal risks that we see very often, right? And again, while most of the physicians that I deal with come to me because of some concern of professional liability, I keep trying to educate them and I keep beating this drum that, hey, yes, you do have professional liability. And we know, for instance, how, how much liability you have statistically, right? We know which, which are the riskiest states. We know which are the riskiest professions in medicine, which are the riskiest specialties. We have all that data. I wrote a like a 10-part article series on medical malpractice risk for physicians practice where we break down all those details. You know, are, are men riskier than women? Is it riskier for young docs than old, et cetera, et cetera? That, all that data is out there and great. Let's manage that malpractice risk in, the, in all the best ways we can, right? Which is diagnosis, compliance, documentation, insurance, right? But let's talk about some of the non-medical risks that take people by surprise. So for instance, you and I are talking the week before tax, uh, two weeks before tax day, right, roughly. And one of the things that we see at this time of year is the financial risk doctors face in getting involved with unscrupulous tax plan promoters who are promoting things that amount to tax fraud. Right. And so they know that doctors are sensitive about taxes and there's a lot of in all the physicians finance groups. Right. The main one of the main topics is always tax avoidance, legal tax avoidance, retirement planning, maximizing loss harvesting on investments. Right. So those are the things that docs are talking about to each other in these physician finance groups online on Facebook and other places. Um, But a lot of that can lead to doctors being targeted by people who are selling snake oil for tax savings, whether it is the abuse of trusts, whether it is doing things that are on the IRS dirty dozen list, which I encourage every physician who's watching us to Google IRS dirty dozen 2023, and you will see a whole list of things that you shouldn't be doing. Now, some of the things on that list can be misinterpreted. So for instance, one of the things that's often on that list is the abuse, abuse, of offshore tools, right? So I use offshore planning to protect high net worth individuals all the time, and it's done in a completely legal and tax compliant way. And they have to report everything. The offshore banks and trust companies have their social security numbers and issue 1099s and everything else, right? Um, So they're getting, they're doing their tax reporting, but there are lots of people out there saying, if you put your assets in my magic trust, you no longer have to pay taxes. Any variation of that plan, anything in the words pure trust, admiralty trust, constitutional trust, um, anything that that smacks or uh, uses the language of the sovereign citizen movement, expect it and beyond potentially expect criminal charges, right? So we're seeing a lot of tax targeting and tax fraud at this time of year. And one thing that I say to doctors is no matter who advised you, no matter how much you paid for the plan, the one thing that is the most important to remember is that you are personally liable for the information in that tax return. And when you sign that return, that's what it says. Another common seasonal risk we're seeing, it's the it's beautiful, everybody's out, it's, it's springtime in, in many places or about to be, um, which means it's wedding season and engagement season. 
And so every year we remind people that prenup planning is an important part of asset protection planning, whether you are late in life, remarrying, whether you are in the middle of your career, whether you're a baby doctor just starting out. It's important because a lot of times when I talk to people who are getting divorced and they are upset about losing a significant amount of their wealth to that divorce, I ask, do you have a prenup? And they say no. And, the, and then the next thing, the next line in the conversation is, we got married young, we didn't have anything, we didn't worry about it. Now that we're grown up and are rich, whatever that you know subjectively means, now it's a big deal. We didn't do it then, we can't do it now. And so there are many issues that can be addressed regardless of what your current level of wealth is. And it can include many things, including student debt, right? which you can become responsible for. So when we have physicians who have that kind of debt or two physician couples, that can be a very big deal. Um, so we warn everybody, hey, if it's wedding season and engagement season, it's also prenup season. Um, we're also enter entering the 100 deadliest days of the year, which is the time between uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day, right? And what does that mean? That is the time of the year where people are on vacation both adults and the children for whom you bear personal legal liability. That can be both your grade school and high school age children. It can also be your college age children that might be home for spring break as, as one example or home over the summer. If they are in your homes, using your vehicles, uh, using your property, using your cabin, using the boat, using, this, using the vacation home, whatever it is, there is a significant amount of liability and we call it the 100 deadliest days of the year because that in that period every year over and over it has been well established by the NTSB and the government and underwriters and everybody else that this during this 100 days we see the largest number of accidents fatalities injuries and of course following from that liability so how do we prevent that number 1 Again, the first, the first line of defense is always the same. It's leadership and compliance, right? So you are responsible for making sure that people for whom you bear liability, friends, children, family members, business associates that may be using your, um, your cabin, your boat, whatever it is, that you are implementing and enforcing rules of conduct as to how it is acceptable to you to use your property. Um, that you are well insured on those issues. And again, for most physicians, I say the minimum umbrella you should walk out your personal liability you should, umbrella you should walk out your front door with is $2 million. That is for even a baby doctor. Um, these days, the old fallacy of the million dollars, given the cost of a death or a permanent injury and the cost of new vehicles and property damage, a million is no longer adequate. Two million is the new entry level. Um, and if you are high net worth, then it should probably even be more than that. But, you know, there, there are only so many things you can do, but you do need to pay attention to what's happening. You do need to be the leader. You do need to enforce those rules. And the, you know, the, the most immediate thing that's coming up is, you know, spring break. Some people are already on it. Some people are going to be engaging in that in the, over the next few weeks. But that's really when, um, you know, the heat starts for, for that kind of risk. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of the personal risks that a lot of people overlook because they're so focused on the medical malpractice risk. Right. Wow, that's great. I think this is really helpful information. 
Um, I mean, I'm not even sure that I am prepared for some of this. So I'm learning as we go along here as well. This is really great information. Um, all right, well, we've covered a lot and maybe what we'll have to do is have you back and cover some additional topics because you're just a wealth of information. I think it's great. Any final thoughts on really just the basics of, um, we cover physicians, no matter where you are in your career, needing to make sure you have the right protections in place, the right insurances in place. We talked about running your business and how you need to have protections in place for that. And we talked about some of those outside issues that can create personal liability for you, your children, of course, uh, out there. Um, and, you know, things like cyber liability, uh, workplace violence, et cetera. There's just so much to think about here. Any final thoughts? I think the best service we could do to your listeners is just to remind them of the basic. Number one, um, think defensively and act proactively. Number two, remember that there is no way to guarantee your safety and invulnerability to any kind of a claim. Um, so just keep the sort of the basic asset protection strategy that you and I have talked about before in mind, which has three steps. Number one, um, be legally compliant um, and use management and leadership um, to control and limit the behaviors of those for whom you bear liability, including employees, partners, spouses, and children, right? It is not just about the workplace. So number one, in living, let's do compliance. Number two, be adequately insured. And number three, then consider the legal tools that you need as a backstop if our compliance and insurance fails or has gaps in it. If we can concentrate on those three things in any area of your life and any risk that you face, we've got a pretty good chance of making your wealth and the rest of your life more predictable than it is today. Excellent advice. And of course, making sure you have the right support and the right team members. Uh, somebody like Ike guiding you is exactly what we all need because we get very busy in our day-to-day -day lives and we forget uh, about some of these things. So making sure you just have the protections in place proactively, and then you don't need to worry about it because you know you're protected. Um, well, thanks so much, Ike, for being here. And we're going to have all your contact information. So if anybody wants to reach out to Ike directly, um, please feel free to do so. You've also written some amazing articles that are all over physician's practice. Uh, and you can just Google him and see some of the books he's written um, for some additional guidance on these topics. Well, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Hopefully you'll be back. I would love um, to. This is Erica Adler on the Health Law Hotspot. Thanks for joining us today. You can catch more of our episodes at ralaw.com, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.